Let's open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter number 1 tonight. What a blessing it is to be in the house of the Lord with you. Amen. Amen. A lot of places we could have been, but I'm thankful that we're here tonight. And uh, a lot of us, we could have been in jail tonight, amen, and probably a few of y'all should be. But uh, I'm thankful that we're here tonight, gathered together, in fellowship of the truth of the gospel. Acts chapter number 1, and um, I've, I've spent the past, what, 14, 15 weeks on Sunday nights preaching on the book of Amos. And we finished that up this past Sunday night. And um, I love the book of Amos. Amen. What a blessing. What a help we got from it. Uh, but now that we're done with it, I'm going to take the liberty to preach a simple message to you tonight out of the book of Acts. You say, why the book of Acts, Brother King? Because it's not the book of Amos. Amen. Not that I didn't enjoy it. I did. And I'd do it all over again. But we'll switch gears a little bit tonight and preach out of the book of Acts. Just a few simple thoughts, maybe an encouragement to us on this Sunday evening. And then we'll have a time of fellowship over in our Life Center. I don't know. What are we having? Danishes. Sounds a little European to me. That's all right. Yeah, that's right. We're looking forward to it. All right. Acts chapter number 1 tonight. And I'd like to begin reading verse number 1. This is familiar scripture, I believe, to most of us children of God that have studied our Bibles. Uh, the uh, Luke, uh, the recorder, the historian, if we want to give him that title, after uh, with Holy Ghost pen in hand, pinning down the book of Luke, uh, he then follows up with the book of Acts. And it is in that context that he says this in verse 1, The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until the day in which He was taken up, after that He wrought through, after that He through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom He had chosen, to whom also He showed Himself alive after His passion by many infallible proofs being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. When they therefore were come together... They asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? He said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. When he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven." Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you tonight. What a blessing it is to get to be in your house. Lord, we thank you for the uh, sweet time that we had together this morning, the ministration of the Spirit of God and the application of the Word of God in lives. But Lord, we've come tonight for a fresh touch, for a fresh word, Lord, and for a fresh move that God, you might do a work in our hearts and minds that would bring glory to Christ 
and make and form us more into His image. I pray that the Holy Ghost would have liberty this evening. I pray that He'd have the government, uh, governance and, and administration of this service, that everything that would done uh, be done tonight would exalt the Lord Jesus, for it's in His name we ask all this. Amen. In Acts chapter number 1, we find the Lord Jesus ascending up into heaven, leaving parting words for His disciples. There was a passage of Scripture, Brother Charlie, that occurred to me when I was reading through this portion of God's Word, and uh, it sort of frames some of the things that I want to say about this passage tonight. You don't have to turn there, although certainly you're welcome to if you have your Bible. But in Hebrews chapter number 10 and verse 19, the writer of Hebrews makes this statement. And talking about our current condition as believers, he says, "...having therefore, brethren, uh, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Brother Larry, I'm interested in that phrase that says a new and living way. I understand the implications of what the Hebrews writer is saying concerning our approach, Brother Ken, under the presence of God. But it is a reminder to me that when the Lord Jesus left instruction for His disciples shortly after He ascended to heaven, He was laying out the framework of what Brother Charlie was a new way to them. A new way of worship, a new way of interaction with God, a new way of existing in this world. We often think to ourselves of the birth of Jesus being the turning point dispensationally concerning God's plan, but that really I don't believe is accurate. It was not the birth of the Lord Jesus, Brother Fred. It was the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus that brought into and instituted a new covenant. I'm saying this tonight. Everything changed after the cross. Everything changed after the empty tomb. And here in Acts chapter number 1, as the Lord Jesus is, is issuing these, these parting words, we find some new things, some new concepts, at least they were new relative to where those men were standing, what had been their lived experience of a relationship with God. And I just want us to notice these new things and consider in your life and mine how readily we are embracing the reality of these things. I'm glad the cross changed things. It sure enough changed my life. Amen. And uh, most people in this room, probably everybody in this room would testify that the cross has changed their life. Uh, Paul said that if any man be in Christ, how do you get in Christ? By going to the cross. Uh, that's how we're in Christ. Uh, we partake in His death, partake in His burial, partake in His resurrection life. If any man be in Christ, old things, Paul said, are passed away. And behold, that means you can see it. Amen? I, I said that means you can see it. Behold, all things are become 
new. And so what are some of these new things? Well, here standing on the hillside at Mount Olivet, I find five new things that the Lord Jesus pointed to and brought to their attention that would be new ways of experiencing God in this present dispensation that we now 2,000 years later are living in and have been enjoying throughout this church age. Look with me at verse number 4 of our text. The Bible says, "...in being assembled together with them..." Speaking of the Lord Jesus, He was assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem. Can I just pause there for a second? It's sitting in my notes, but I'm going to say it anyway. I didn't want to put it in my notes, but I figured you'd have enough grace to let me say it anyway. Can I say that there's been a new concept of worship and what worship is has been instituted on this side of the cross of Calvary. Worship is no longer going to a place of a ceremony, going to a geographical location that is imbued with meaningfulness because that's where God has chosen to set His name there. But Brother Charlie, now worship is centered around a people that know God, that are redeemed, that are washed in His blood, that gather together, Brother Ken. They're a called out body of believers. In other words, hey, it's not about Jerusalem. It's about the church of the living God where God's people have banded together and grouped together in uh, fellowship and in work for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm glad if I want to hear from God, I don't have to go to Jerusalem to do it. I'm glad now we're the temple of the living God. I just noticed that they were assembled together. (laughs) And that's what the church is. It's a called out assembly of believers. This is radically different from the notion of what a Hebrew would have experienced throughout their uh, many storied years of knowing God. This notion that God's presence is where God's people are. And not simply that God's people should be where God's presence is. Can I tell you something? We, as we lead our family, as we endeavor to see our family be all it can be for the grace of God and the glory of God. Certainly we ought to strive to be somewhere where God meets with His people. But I'm also glad to report that you and I, if we're indwelt by the Spirit of God, and if we're born again, we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. We are now the temple of the living God. And He indwells His people and He meets with us. And it's not about a hillside in the land of Israel, but it's about the hearts of His people. We've been gathered together. I just noticed they were assembled together. That ain't in my notes. That ain't even no preaching. I just wanted to say it. that That would have been different to them. This notion that where they were gathered together, He'd be there, that shouldn't surprise me. He'd already told them where two or three are gathered together in my name, there will I be. And uh, so it shouldn't have been strange, but undoubtedly this notion of where the place of worship was was a strange thing to them. He met them out there on the hillside because that's where His people were. And as they were gathered together, He commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem. Now, that wasn't a permanent instruction. They would leave Jerusalem. But they were to stay there for this reason. He says, but wait for the promise of the Father. Now, what is the promise of the Father that he's referencing? He says, Which saith he, ye have heard of me? For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Now, let me reconcile a few things uh, in our minds and hearts as we study this passage of Scripture. Uh, Let me say, first off, the baptism of the Holy Ghost has nothing to do with uh, what some would call signs following. It don't have anything to do with tongues. don't have anything to do with healing. It doesn't have anything to do with holy laughter, whatever it might be. Uh, That's not what the baptism of the Holy Ghost is. The baptism of the Holy Ghost is the operation by which you and I, as unregenerate sinners, when we get born again, are placed supernaturally into the family 
of God. We are born again by His Spirit, Brother Ken, and we are baptized by His Spirit into the body of Christ. It's the remarkable supernatural action whereby God uh, translates us from the power of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And every single born-again believer in this dispensation of grace that we live in with a whole Bible in our hands, uh, with, with uh, the, the uh, church being established, every one of us, we experience the baptism of the Holy Ghost the moment that we're born again. Every single one of us. We understand that in the uh, time, what, what some people have called a transitional period, uh, in the book of Acts, we understand there were some that had heard the Word of God, had not yet received the Holy Ghost. And certainly there were some of the disciples uh, that had received the Holy Ghost. The Bible tells us in John chapter number 20 that when the Lord Jesus breathed on those uh, in the upper room that they received the Holy Ghost. But later on, Paul tells us that on this hillside, it wasn't just Peter, James, and John, tells us that there was over 500 brethren present on this hillside, uh, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. So there's a lot of folks gathered here. And a lot of them that were not there in the upper room. And so what's he telling them? He's saying, listen, you need to wait because the Spirit of God is going to sit down on this assembly and He's going to indwell God's people. In other words, I'd say this. When I read this passage, I find there's a new presence that is here. In other words, the concept, and this sort of ties in with what we said a moment ago, inadvertently, I guess, or maybe scripturally. But the, it's, it, to them, their notion of being in God's presence, Brother Ken, would have been if you want God's presence, you go to Jerusalem where the Shekinah glory of God once a year sits down on the temple. If you want to be in the presence of God, you go on a feast day to the temple and God's presence will grace you there. This notion that God's presence would be with His people perpetually would have been a strange and radical concept to any Jew living at that time. But you know, the Bible, all through the gospel, the Lord Jesus would make statements concerning this comforter that would come. And He makes a bunch of them in John, uh, in the book of John, chapters 14, 15, and 16. Let me read a few of them uh, to you. In John 14, 16, uh, the Lord Jesus said this, I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another comforter, that He may abide with you forever. I wonder what those folks... Uh, that, that tragically believe that a person could be saved one moment and lost the next moment do with John 14, 16. If you believe that the Spirit of God indwells you when you get born again, and as Bible believers we believe that, but even those that are living in error concerning eternal security, even they believe that, uh, then what are they going to do with John 14, 16? Jesus said He'll be with you forever. Not, not He'll be with you as long as you behave. Amen. <laughs> he wouldn't be with me very long but He'll be with you forever. What does He do in our lives? John 14, 26, the Lord Jesus said that the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, because the Bible's the best commentary on the Bible, we don't have to wonder who the Comforter is. Jesus said the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in My name, He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. And John 15, 26 the Lord said, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And in John 16, 7, the Lord Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. So over and over again in the gospel record, over and over again in the very words of the Lord Jesus Himself, He said that the way that God is going to interact with His people, the way that He is going to commune with His people, the way Brother Kenny is going to be present with His people is going to be through uh, this third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. 
This was entirely new to them. Uh, the Bible uh, describes for us the ministration of the Spirit of God in the Old Testament. But nowhere, Brother Ken, do we ever find the Spirit of God indwelling someone. You go through the Old Testament, you'll find Him. Sometimes He was in front of people leading them. Sometimes He was behind them pushing them. Sometimes He was on either side of them, Brother Charlie, enveloping them. Uh, sometimes He was above them. Sometimes He was beneath them. Seems like He was everywhere except indwelling them. And the reason for that is because it was not until the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ could sanctify the vessel, the person, and make it a fit receptacle for the presence of God Himself. Uh, But Paul uh, tells us over and over again that we are the temple of the Holy Ghost. We are the temple of God. This is holy new, holy unusual. And I say this, we ought to raise our hands in praise and bless His holy name that God loves us enough that He don't just come visit us once a year on the Day of Atonement. He don't just come by when things is about to fall apart, but He literally every single day, 24 hours a day, uh, every single day, 365 days a year, and an extra one on a leap year. He's always there with us. This would have been unusual to them. And yet, sadly, you know the truth. We've learned to take it for granted. Could you imagine a people so blind and self-interested that they could take for granted that God Himself has done took up residence in their heart and life? And yet, I'd be describing myself at times. And I'd probably be describing some of us in this room from time to time. You say, why do you believe that, preacher? Well, because we have the very presence of God within us. And on three different occasions, Paul warned us about how we interact with the Holy Spirit and commanded us that we should not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, that we should not quench the Holy Spirit of God, that we should not refuse the Holy Spirit of God. And I'm just telling you this tonight as the Spirit of God ministers to your heart and mind. We ought to understand that's not something men have been able to experience throughout eternity past. This is something that you and I have the high holy privilege as being born in this church age of experiencing is God Himself taking up residence within us, ministering to us, revealing truth in accordance with His Word unto us, giving us peace, giving us comfort, giving us courage. This is a whole new thing from where they stood. So the Lord reminds them, that their interactions with Him are going to be different. They're not going to look upon His face. They're not going to be there uh, in front of Him face to face in the flesh, but rather that God Himself will perpetually indwell them through the person of the Holy Spirit. Look down at verse number 6 with me. We find there's a new presence that is mentioned. But then in verse number 6, they have have a question of Him. Verse 6, it says, When they therefore were come together, they asked of Him, saying, Lord... Will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? This was a natural question that they would have asked him. Uh, every single Jew alive then and uh, every single uh, practicing Jew alive today wonders when will be the establishment of the Messiah's kingdom. I don't think we can overstate, Brother Ken, how central the promise of national governmental autonomy and supremacy is to Jewish worship. All throughout the Old Testament and even to this day, the very heartbeat of their worship has always been that God is sending a Messiah, that He's going to cast off the yoke of oppressive nations, that He is going to sit on a throne in Jerusalem, and that He is going to rule absolutely and surely. And so it is not surprising that the disciples at this stage 
would ask this question. They had been wondering this for some time. In fact, uh, many occasions when the Lord would talk about the kingdom of heaven, they often mistook that to be uh, an imminent reality politically speaking. Uh, the, uh, when he would talk about the kingdom of heaven, the Jews that were present there were thinking about the kingdom of Israel. Now listen carefully what I'm about to say. One of these days, the kingdom of heaven is going to become the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of heaven is a real, literal, uh, visible kingdom. It is not tangible at this moment. Uh, it's in the heavens, but it is a real, literal, visible kingdom. Uh, and you say, well, why is it up in heaven? Because that's where the king is. Well, one of these days he's coming back and he's going to set up that throne in Jerusalem and he will reign precisely like they expect him to reign. But when he would talk about the kingdom of heaven, they thought what he was saying is uh, Jesus is going to take that whip in his hands that he drove us out of the temple with and he's going to drive the Romans out of the land. And uh, on various occasions, that's what they thought the Lord was talking back. One time they took him and tried to forcibly crown him king. He would not allow him to do so. They wanted him to be uh, king over the land, but they didn't want him to be king over their hearts. He said, I will not have one without the other. And so this is a natural question for them to ask. And listen how the Lord replies to them. He said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in His own power. Now, I'm going to give you two reasons why he gave that answer. The first reason he gave that answer is because he didn't know. Don't get upset at me. Your King James Bible says that no man knoweth the day nor the hour, not the angels in heaven, not even the Son, that only the Father knows. You say, why didn't he tell them when that kingdom was going to be set up? He didn't know. There's a second reason he didn't. Because they didn't, listen now, need to know. Instead, what they needed to do was fervently, patiently, passionately serve Him, trusting Him day by day, that in His own time and in His own way, He would bring all these things to pass. I would say it this way, Brother Ken, I see not only a new presence in this passage, I see a new perspective. All throughout their history, the Jews had been fixated on when the king was going to come back and set up his throne. And when they asked this question to the Lord Jesus, his answer is not soon. Now let me say this, I believe it's soon. I believe it's been 2,000 years since then. I still believe that if He came back today, we could call it soon. A day with the Lord is as a thousand years. A thousand years is a day. But let me say this, even though I believe it could be another thousand years, I don't believe it will be another thousand years. I believe He's coming back soon. Can I tell you something? Really, at the end of the day, that's not information I have to have to be able to fulfill the calling that God's put on my life. And you don't either. I've always thought so foolish all the date setting and guessing, because it's really guessing is what it is. It's either guessing or grifting, one of the two. <laughs> if I'm being kind, it's guessing, but if I'm being honest, most of the time it's being, it's grifting is all that it is. Uh, all the date setting and all that nonsense. Listen, not only is it unbiblical, it's impossible to deduce the day or hour. It's not in the Word of God. So how do you know that? Because Jesus is the Word of God. And Jesus said, I don't know the day nor the hour. There are things I don't understand about that. Uh, there's a lot in this Bible I don't understand altogether, but I can take it by faith. I don't understand everything about that, but I believe Him when He said He doesn't know the day nor the hour. So no amount of, of, of taking this letter and skipping this many letters and then taking that letter and then going diagonally and then draw, drawing a squiggly line and then holding it up to the light, ain't none of that going to give you the day when Jesus is coming back. It's not in the Bible. 
Uh, and if it ain't in the Bible, it ain't nowhere else either except in the heart and mind of God the Father. But can I tell you something? We don't have to know when that is. Our marching orders stay the same irrespective of whether we know when that time, when that day is. And this would have been unusual to them. Here's what Jesus was saying. He was saying, quit getting hung up on the days and the seasons and the times and just serve Him in the present. All of Jewish life was fixated on the perspective, Brother Ken, but He's saying live in the present. This is a new perspective for them. This notion that they don't have to know that it's just theirs to, to do and to serve was a new way of thinking. In fact, Paul summarizes it in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, and and he says this about the Jews as a people, Brother Charlie. He says the Jews require a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block and under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, he's saying it ain't about looking for a sign. It is instead about serving Him. It's not about constantly looking to the heavens to try to deduce some way of understanding what time it's going to be. Uh, listen, our, our, our eyes ought not constantly be uh, up towards the heavens looking for uh, signs, but they ought to be set firmly ahead at the row we're plowing in front of us, not looking back, not looking up. But listen, thank God, always looking ahead to see what God can use us to do. And this would have been unusual to them. And yet this has been a reality in the way that the church lives and operates, or it should be. I, listen, I believe in prophecy preaching. I, I don't see how you can be a Bible believer and not believe in prophecy preaching. But there is a lot of prophecy preaching that is used to do exactly what these men were doing later on in the passage, Brother Kent. There's a lot of folks standing around gazing up into heaven when they ought to have their hand to the plow. Uh, fixedly and and fixatedly uh, obsessing over whatever eschatological theories and concepts that they can uh, try to divine out of the Word of God instead of doing the work and task that God has called us to do. Listen, I believe we can know what God's plan is uh, for uh, men and for the ages. I believe we can understand clearly exactly what the Bible teaches concerning the second coming of the Lord Jesus. I don't believe we ought to shy away from it, but never should we allow any of those things to destroy Distract us from moving forward, surging forward in serving Him. Jesus said it's not about looking for a sign. It's not about the setting up of a kingdom here on earth. But for where you sit and from where you're standing, He said, it's your responsibility merely to serve and to trust and to go on and to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. This would have been radically different for them. They were fixated on a kingdom. Jesus said instead minister to the king. Don't worry about the kingdom. The king will worry about the kingdom. Instead, you just worry about the king. So there's a new perspective here. But then look at verse number 8. The Lord Jesus said this, "...but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. Ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth." So when I read this passage, I see there's a new presence. The Holy Spirit would indwell men in this church age. There is a new perspective. We would not be looking for a kingdom because we already have the king and we ought to just serve the king and go on and live for him. Then I see, Brother Charlie, in this passage there would be a new power that would be experienced by members of the body of Christ. He says, you shall receive power. And when is that power going to 
fall upon them? When will it be imbued unto them? It says, after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. The power that they would be enjoined unto them would not be their own power, but rather it would be the power of God that would energize and enable them for the, uh, for the following work, being a witness, and we'll say something about that here in a moment, uh, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. But here's what he's saying. You're not going to serve me in your own strength. You're going to serve me in my strength, the strength that I supply. Now, it just stands to reason that if the Spirit of God did not indwell men in the Old Testament, then the Spirit of God did not enable men, predominantly speaking, for the work that God called them to do in the Old Testament. Now, somebody's going to say, oh, preacher, but what about Samson? Oh, preacher, but what about examples when the Spirit of God uh, fell upon, descended upon David, descended upon Saul? And And listen, I understand all that's true. I'm not saying that there weren't special dispensations of the ministration of the Spirit of God in the Old Testament. It's God's Spirit. He can do with it as He pleases. But as a normal course of order, Men did not do in the Old Testament what they did for God in the power of the Spirit of God. Now, if they didn't do it in the power of the Spirit of God, whose power did they do it in? They did it under their own power. They had to do it through their own will, through their own means, and through their own energies. That's not to say God did not bless and favor what they did, but it is to say that what we experience today in the power of the Spirit of God favoring and enabling the work of God is not something that these men, being Jewish believers and what they would have experienced, would have ever known before. You know, in the New Testament, Paul describes our position as laborers, and he calls us fellow laborers with God. And in that context, he describes the fact that one will plant and another will water, but he says, Brother Charlie, it's God that giveth the increase. Have you ever thought about what a divinely remarkable thing it is to grow a garden or to plant a seed, to grow a flower, whatever it might be? You take that seed that if it was left on your nightstand uh, would sit there and do nothing for hundreds of years, thousands of years, uh, presumably until the world ended. It wouldn't do nothing but just sit there and be dead and be dry. And yet you could take a cup of dirt and it would not do anything. You could take a cup of water and it would do nothing but evaporate. You could take light and shine it upon that location alone and it wouldn't do anything but it can except shine there. But you take all those things and put them together and then all of a sudden something amazing and remarkable and magical happens. All of a sudden life seems to spring forth from this inanimate material. Now, there's a reason for that that I think goes all the way back to the book of Genesis when the Bible tells us water covered the face of the deep and that the Spirit of God moved upon the waters. I believe He gave to the earth a, a, a ability uh, to elicit at least, uh, you know, what, what we would call non-sentient life uh, from the ground. In other words, plant life and things of that sort. And it's also not, rem- uh, not, not surprising that when God brought forth animals and creatures, He brought them forth of the water, Brother Charlie, and He brought them forth of the ground. So that's not at all amazing. But listen, there's something else that I have learned. I have learned this. I have learned you can have uh, seed, you can have dirt, you can have water, you can have light, you can have fertilizer, <laughs> and still not grow anything. If you don't believe that, come by and look at my garden sometime and we'll talk about it. So, you know, in other words, at the end of the day, you can have all the components. But who is it that makes one plant spring up out of the ground 
and another plant not. Why, it's the God of creation. Now listen, if you ain't picked up on it yet, I'm talking about more than just plants tonight. I'm saying in any, in any endeavor of serving the Lord, what is it that causes a work to go on? What is it that causes it to bear fruit? When we talk about witnessing to people, man, I've seen people give the gospel in impeccable ways and that seed fall on hard hearts. I have seen other people barely just stumble through it. I've been that person most of the time. And yet God, bless it and favor it, water it and, and, and give it sunlight and cause it to grow. In the most explicit of terms, in a supernatural and wholly proprietary way, in this dispensation of grace, Brother Ken, we are working with God to see a work done in this world. What we are doing and what we are endeavoring to do and laboring is wholly supernatural in its nature. What an absurd thing that you could walk up uh, to a person's doorstep and in a few short words shake everything they thought they knew and change everything they thought they were sure of. I mean, listen, that's beyond your means. That's beyond my means. I can't do that. If there were magic words that could do it, uh, then, then I, I would have surely learned them by now. But it ain't magic words that does it. It's the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus and the ministry of the Spirit of God. We are doing a wholly unique thing in this dispensation. We are offering ourselves a living sacrifice unto God. We are putting the work and putting the labor and putting the effort out there. But if the God of glory does not bless it, does not favor it, does not energize, enable, and empower it, then nothing will be accomplished. The Old Testament, the things that they did, because by and large, save for uh, some a few in the Old Testament uh, that ministered in miraculous ways with the power of God in an unusual manner, the average believer in the Old Testament was not endeavoring to do supernatural things. Uh, they were instead endeavoring to maintain uh, a semblance of righteousness in accordance with the law. But what we're trying to do today is a supernatural thing. It's something that if it don't have God's power, it can't get done. Because of that, God has determined that He'd bless it and favor it with His power. Paul described it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He said, I, brethren, when I came unto you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom. You say, preacher, I can't witness to people. I'm too dumb. Paul said he was dumb. I don't think he was, but he said he was. Uh, preacher, I can't witness to people. I, I just, I'm not, I can't talk to people. I don't have that ability. Paul said, when he came, he came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. In fact, he made up his mind not to do that. He said, for I determined not to know anything among you, uh, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He said, I didn't want to dazzle them with my book learning. That wouldn't change anything. He says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. Paul said if it, if it was uh, that the message had to be good enough, he said my message wouldn't have been good enough. If it was that the homiletics of the matter had to be dialed in, Paul said I didn't have everything homiletically aligned. Instead, he said it was done in demonstration of the Spirit and power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul said here's what I did. I came with who I am and what I am and as sincere and genuine as I was able to, I tried to do the work of God amongst you. And God looked down and saw that sincerity, that genuineness, and saw that the, uh, the authenticity, the message of the gospel was being presented. And he said that God blessed it and God favored it. And it was not the power of Saul, it was the power of God 
that did the work amongst the church at Corinth. This is wholly unusual. The idea that we would we would not just be uh, worshipers of God, but that we would be laborers with God is wholly unusual. But listen, thank the Lord, what an honor it is uh, that you and I, that God would be willing to labor alongside of us, to work alongside of us. I've worked with people before that I didn't want folks to know what I worked with them. I didn't want folks seeing the work we did and, and, and the work they did and thinking that was work that I did. But listen, what a, what a humbling thing that the God of glory would bless and favor what we do. If it's done in the right way with the right spirit, God will bless and favor it and use it for His glory. There's a new power that is described here. But then he goes on a little further. He says, "...ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you." And here's what that power is going to do. He says, "...ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth." We find in this passage there was a new purpose given to believers uh, in this dispensation of grace in what we call the church age. Now, you know what's amazing to me, Brother Ken? I think about how radically different, how strange this must have been for them as Jewish believers. We think of Peter and James and John as being Christians. And of course, they were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were born again. They were regenerate. But for the vast majority of their life, they would have considered themselves to be obedient and faithful Jews. We find that James didn't lose that concept of himself, even after he was born. He still thought of himself as being Jewish, holy in culture and in worship, although he thought of himself as being what we might call today a perfected Jew, a Jew that's believed on the Messiah. And so, as a Jewish individual, they would have had, listen now, a very inward and insular perspective about their work and purpose and responsibility in this world. What would a Jew have thought his responsibility was at this time in human history? Well, a Jew would have thought his responsibility, uh, Brother Ken, number one, was to keep the law, to keep himself pure. Number two, he would have thought that his responsibility was to labor for the good and benefit of the land of Israel and for his brethren, for other Jews. And number three, he would have thought that his responsibility was to keep himself and his house unspotted from Gentile influence. So in other words, his concept of why he lived in this world would have been, my responsibility is to maintain a righteous condition, to be obedient to God, to maintain my Jewish identity in as pure and as thorough a way as I possibly can. Here's the Gentiles outside the camp, and I don't need to let them reach in here and touch and change the way I as a Jew am living. There wouldn't have been no Jewish soul winning. There wouldn't have been no Jewish missions conferences. Uh, there wouldn't have been no, no Jewish, let's go out and reach the neighborhood. There would have been none of that. Their responsibility would have been insular. It would have been protective. It would have been inward. It would have been something that they were supposed to keep themselves from the world that was around them. Now listen carefully. I understand morally, spiritually, uh, righteously speaking, we are to be separate from the world. Don't misunderstand what I'm about to say as regards that. Of course we are to be separate from the world. Of course we are to come out from among them. But do you understand that as New Testament believers, there is a complete almost 360 or I guess 180 degree turn. 360 degrees would have us facing the same way. Man, that ain't going to get us anywhere. But a 180 degree turn, Brother Ken, as to 
our perspective of our responsibility in the world. The Jews' concept would have been at that time, and the reason I say that is because these men were Jewish. Their concept up to this point would have been that their responsibility was to the land of Israel solely, completely, thoroughly, and that their job was to keep being good Jews and not let the Gentiles change them. But now the Lord Jesus says, you're going to leave the land of Israel, you're going to start in the land of Israel, but you're going to leave the land of Israel, and you're going to go out to these Gentiles carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you're going to seek to win them and to see their lives changed. In other words, this outward perspective, this outward world view would have been something wholly different. Can I tell you something? Sad to say, but there's a lot of churches have gotten into the old Jewish way of thinking as regards ministry. They think their idea, uh, and, and I hope this is not Walridge. I don't believe it is Walridge. Uh, but there's a lot of churches in the world today that they believe their idea is to create as good and as pure, Brother Charlie, and as godly a social club as they possibly can. They'll turn and fuss at the Southern Baptists for having social clubs, and then Independent Baptists will do the exact same thing, just with a King James Bible. And I'm just telling you, I believe in my King James Bible. I ain't giving it up. I'm just saying I believe that our responsibility ought to be further than just these four walls. We have a responsibility outside this place. Listen, of course we want to minister uh, to the responsibilities and needs of the body of Christ. Of course, uh, we ought to do good unto all men, especially them of the household of faith. But listen, uh, Lord, help us to never get to a place where our only focus is on trying to build up the comfort and leisure and convenience and ministration of what goes on in these walls and we neglect a lost and dying world outside of this place. This is a wholly new concept to them, a whole new purpose. Their job is not to uh, merely treat the world as though it's something that ought to constantly be kept at arm's length. And listen, I again, I understand we're to be separate from the world. You understand it, I understand it's in my Bible like it's in your Bible. But we're also commanded to go out unto the world and reach them. In fact, that was the thing that the Lord Jesus told, uh, the position, the commission that was given. In Mark chapter number 16, verse 15, He said unto them, Go ye into all the world. Not sit around and wait for somebody from the world to trip into the sanctuary. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So there's a new purpose that's given to them. And finally, I'll be done tonight. Look down at verse number 9 with me. Verse number 9. The Bible says that when He had spoken these things... While they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Let me say they were given, Brother Charlie, a new promise in Acts chapter number 1. i got to say, Brother Ken, I, I sympathize with these men. I think it's funny that the angel fusses at them. I'm not saying he's wrong. He's an angel. I'll defer that he's probably right. But I can't help but think to myself, if I was there, I would have probably been doing the exact same thing. I, there'd be a hundred reasons. I'd be standing there, mouth on the floor, looking up towards the heavens. And I think whenever there is an an admonition given here from these angels, I think the reason is given 
has more to do with you and I where we sit than it really had to do with these men. And it had more to do, listen carefully, with a broader perspective on how we live in this world and in this dispensation than it had to do with what they did in the next five minutes. In other words... I think he was saying this. I think the the, the two uh, angels were saying unto them this. Uh, instead of spending your time gazing up into heaven, uh, why don't you go in obedience and do what he's called you to do? Because rest assured, very soon he's coming back in the way you've seen him ascend. In other words, I don't think they were saying, why are you standing here gazing like there's nothing to look at? I think he was saying this. What are you all doing? You all better get busy. He's coming back soon. You know He's returning. So don't waste the time that you've been given. It's interesting to consider, Jim, the fact that all through the Old Testament, the Jews sat uh, waiting and anticipating the coming of the Messiah. And there is a marked change in the condition of the church in one way, Brother Ken, but in another way there's not. They sat around waiting on His first coming. We sat around waiting on His second coming. The difference is in what we are to do in response to that. The Jewish perspective of life as regarded the waiting for the Messiah was that they needed to hold out. If all they could do was just hold out for Charlie, the Messiah would come and would deliver them. But instead, you and I are told in the book of Philippians, that we are to hold forth the word of truth. We're not holding out. We're holding forth. In other words, we're not hunkering down. We're pressing on. And the reason is not because we don't believe He's coming back, beloved. It's because we know that He is coming back. The thing that we are laboring and waiting or anticipating... Uh, in this dispensation of grace that we live in, is not some sign from the heavens. Uh, it's not for some TV preacher to tell us he's finally done all the math and carried the one and figured it out. We know what the next thing to happen is, Brother Charlie. The next thing to happen is the rapture of the church. Amen. We understand at the end of a seven-year period of, of uh, tribulation after that that the glorious appearing is going to take place. I've always taken a lot of comfort in a lot of the promises regarding the glorious appearing, Brother Ken. You know why? Because to me, the next thing I'm waiting on, just as Jews as a nation are waiting for the glorious appearing, I, as part of the family of God, I'm waiting on the rapture to take place. And for me, there's not a real material difference in the experience of the rapture taking place and then seven years later. In other words, He's coming like a thief in the night. Amen? But He's also coming to be beheld by all men. Whichever promise I'm looking at, and I can I can compartmentalize them, but I'm saying at the end of the day, it's a reminder to me that He's coming soon. What I'm looking for, I'm not looking for signs. I'm not looking for moons. Amen. I'm not looking. I'm not looking for the calendar to line up. I'm not looking for the stars to line up. I know there's nothing withholding His appearing at this very moment. He could come right now. 
for the church. Paul talked about, spoke about the Thessalonians that they had, uh, that were Thessalonians that they had turned from idols to serve the living God and to wait for the appearing of His dear Son. Hey, Peter believed He was coming soon. Paul believed He was coming soon. John said this, said, Beloved, now are we the sons of God and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we... He didn't say y'all going to be like Him. He said we shall be like Him. He didn't say whoever reads this in a thousand years is going to be like Him, Brother Ken. He said we... He said me too. I'm waiting on it. I can't wait to see it. We shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And you know what He went on to say? He said every man that hath this hope in Him purifieth himself, even as He is pure. You know, if we really believe, I'm saying if we really believe, not just if we profess to believe, but if we really believe Jesus is coming soon, it'll have a purifying effect in our life. What kind of shape do you want to be in when He returns? I believe He's coming back soon. And if I believe that, that should produce in me a circumspect attitude. It should make me say this, I want to keep, old-timers used to call it this way, keep short accounts with God. I don't want to live in sin. He may come back at any moment. You say, preacher, what's going to happen uh, if he comes back and you've got sin in your life? The blood will still cover it. The blood will still cover it. Some folks have the idea if you ain't right with God when he comes back, that's it, man. You just miss it. You done been left at home one too many times because you're slow getting ready for church. Done made you paranoid, amen? That's not how the Lord works. The blood covers it all, amen? But I don't want him to be ashamed at his appearing. He can be ashamed at his appearing of us. I don't want to be ashamed at his appearing. And I'm saying this, if I really believe he could come in the next few moments, what should that produce in us? We're given a new promise. And that promise is that that same Jesus that went up into heaven, he's coming again in like manner. A lot of old-time churches, uh, they'd point to that to say, see, he can't be coming back on a white horse because he's coming back in the clouds, Brother Charlie. Uh, here's what I did. I went right around him and said, yeah, I believe he's coming back both ways. I believe he's coming back in the clouds. And then seven years later, I believe he's coming back on a white horse. My King James Bible tells me both things. And I just go ahead and believe both things. And I don't believe there's any that there's any uh, irreconcilable differences between those two things. But what I'm looking for, what I'm waiting for, is for him to come back in like manner as he went up. Uh, you know, the Bible tells us that uh, those that uh, that believe this, they will turn from sin and look for his appearing. The Bible tells us that we ought to provoke one another and exhort one another unto good works, and so much the more as you see the day approach. If I believe he's coming back soon, you know what that's going to do? It's going to make me walk purer cleaner, closer, not because I'm afraid He's going to come back and I'm going to get left, but because I believe He is coming back and I don't want to be ashamed at His coming. I, I want to be pleased to see Him when He comes. I, I don't want Him showing up and, and me having to be embarrassed at what He's found me doing. I want Him to be proud. I want me to be proud. I want Him to be pleased. I want me to be pleased. We're to do all things uh, well-pleasing in His sight. And what that means is we ought to be living as though Jesus could come back in the next moment. You know why we should live that way, Brother Charlie? Because He could. Because He could. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar is open, and if the Holy Spirit of God has dealt with your heart, I just think you ought to obey Him tonight. I think you ought to find a place at this altar. Maybe you've not been living uh, as though He's coming back. Uh, maybe you've not been laboring 
in the ministration of the power of God. You've been seeking to do it through your own means or through your own way. Maybe you've allowed that that perspective to be wrong and you've been more worried about seeing to your needs uh, than reaching others who are in need. But whatever it may be that God's spoken to your heart about, won't you find a place down here? And listen, I'll tell you this. Uh, the Spirit of God, as He ministers to you and indwells you, that new presence we experience, if He's speaking to your heart, there's a reason for it. So why don't you meet Him in this altar and see what it is that needs to be adjusted in your life. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.